Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and welcome to all of you that are watching online as well. As Jerry said, last week we kicked off a, a brand new study through the New Testament Book of Acts, a series that we're calling Sent. Uh, and in case you're new to the church, um, the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John serve as biographies for us, uh, sharing the life and the teachings of Jesus. Acts is the fascinating sequel. It's what comes in the immediate days and years afterwards as it begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and then the next 28 chapters cover about 30 plus years uh, of time detailing how the first church became the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus in this world. And last Sunday, Jerry opened us as we walked through the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, describing those moments that Jesus had with his disciples, those final moments here on earth, and we talked about the mission that Jesus gave his followers, and we were reminded that it's our mission as well. And I don't know about you, I don't know how you see it, but if Jesus' mission is ours and we have been sent out in the very same way these disciples were sent out in Acts, don't you want to make sure you do your part? Uh, don't you want to be faithful and obedient to the mission that Jesus has put before you and how he wants to use you to help others find their way back to him? I heard, I heard someone once say it like this. If Acts is 28 chapters, we're living in Acts chapter 29, all right? We're, we're living in the continuation of this story, and that's what this series sent is all about. It's about doing our part together. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible today uh, and turn to the book of Acts. Or if you use something like the YouVersion app, on your phone uh, to go to the New Testament book of Acts with us as we continue in this series. And a quick review from last week. In Acts chapter one, Jesus gathered his followers one last time at a place called the Mount of Olives. And this picture is taken from the perspective of the Mount of Olives, looking down through the Kidron Valley to the old city of Jerusalem, to the temple foundation. It's just a short walk to the temple, of course, as you can see from this photo. But by the time we hit Acts chapter one, it's been 40 days since Jesus' resurrection. He's about to ascend into heaven, but not before telling his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse four, uh, the writer Luke records it this way. He says, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. He said to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And that gift, according to Jesus, is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that Jesus spoke about the night before he was crucified as Jesus was trying to comfort his disciples. And so he talked about how the presence of God was coming, how it would one day come and it would actually rest upon them and he would live in them as his Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is about to leave them and to go into heaven, but not before reminding them about this gift one more time. Acts 1 verse 8, he said to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. All right, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That word power there is the Greek word dunamis. It's a word that means mighty force or strength or, or power. It's where we get our English word dynamite. And so Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, when his power comes, that his people are gonna receive a, a mighty, miraculous, explosive, uh, explosive, permanent power of God in their lives. Now, a power to do what we ask? Well, the answer is in the text. He says, and you will 
receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A witness is someone who gives testimony to the things that they've seen and experienced in their lives. And so Jesus is saying, wait for the gift. All right, wait here, wait for the Holy Spirit who is coming. He's gonna be the source of strength and power in your lives so that you can live faithfully and courageously for him and for Jesus in this world. And just like that, Jesus was gone. Acts 1.8, he ascends into heaven. Remember, it's been 40 days since his resurrection. And now turn the page, if you would, to Acts chapter two and add 10 more days to the chronology. It's been 50 days since the tomb was discovered empty. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter two, verse one, as Luke writes this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now the Jewish people celebrate a number of feasts and holidays each and every year. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are three of those annual celebrations and they all fall the same time of year around the time that we as Christians call Easter. Well, seven weeks after Passover comes the Jewish feast known as Shavuot or as Luke writes here in Acts, it's the Greek word Pentecost. It's a word that means 50 days as it happened every year, 50 days after the Passover festivities. And that's a really important clarification because as Lois Tverberg points out in her book, Sitting at the Feet of Jesus, Christians didn't invent Pentecost. When we, if you've been around church, if you've been around a, especially a traditional church environment, you've maybe heard of Pentecost. You know that Pentecost is that day as we're gonna read in a moment when the Holy Spirit came to be upon God people, and so we remember it that way, but 2,000 years ago, Pentecost was an annual event that the Jewish people had already been celebrating for centuries. What were they celebrating? Well, Pentecost was a one-day celebration to thank the Lord for his provision during the spring harvest, but more than that, it was also a way of giving thanks to God for everything that he had accomplished for the Israelites after they had left Egypt and arrived at the place we know as Mount Sinai. And Sinai has significance, and here's why. As Exodus chapter 19 and 20 described, Sinai is the place where God established a special covenant or relationship with Moses and the Israelites. It's at Sinai where he gave his people the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah, the law, a word that just simply means teachings and instructions. In Exodus 19 in particular, it describes this divine encounter that God had with Moses and with his people at Sinai as he consumed the mountain with his cloud. And as Exodus 19 records, you can read it for yourself, there was wind, there was thunder, and there was fire, and every bit of it was meant to demonstrate that God was here with his people and his desire to be their God and what he had hoped to accomplish through them. Fast forward hundreds of years to Acts chapter two. The disciples, other Jesus followers, along with thousands of Jewish people from around the world would have gone to the temple to commemorate and celebrate Pentecost. And at some point during the morning, the high priest would have stood up in front of the enormous crowd and read from, you guessed it, 
Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Keep this in mind as we read these first few verses from Acts chapter two. Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now we often tend to think that, oh, the disciples, they were in the upper room, but there's a debate over this because scholars will say, how in the world do you pack 120 people amongst thousands of others that are gonna witness this event in an upper room? No, most likely they're at the temple. They're faithful Jews. They're observing and commemorating Pentecost. Verse two, suddenly uh, the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Another reference to the temple where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Just as the divine presence of God appeared at Sinai with what? Fire, wind, and smoke. God is now making his presence known at Pentecost with wind and smoke and tongues of fire here in Acts chapter two. But this event is different than what took place at Sinai because instead of God declaring his intentions on stone through the law, he's now putting his power and his presence in the heart of his people. And this was the gift. This was the gift that Jesus had promised, the one that he had commanded the disciples to wait for. This gift, this spirit was about to do something new and powerful in God's people and the disciples wasted no time because in verse five we read, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And why in the world were they in Jerusalem? Well, they had come for Passover. And if you, like the tens of thousands of people, had come from different parts of the world for Passover, you often would wait around an additional 50 days for Shavuot, for Pentecost. And so these people, they came from all over the world. Verse six, when they heard this sound, this crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking, these disciples, Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own negative? native language and then we are given these different geographical points, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Lucrites, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What in the world is happening here in Acts chapter two? Tim Keller describes describes this as a multi-language miracle. The, he says the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Holy Spirit and a sign that God wants the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message to go to the ends of the earth. And so he's making his presence known to the disciples and to those around them and he's putting his permanent presence in his people just as Jesus promised. And while powerful, lots of confusion because what in the world is happening here as we read verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed and the crowd asked one another, what does this mean? And so the people in the crowd, apart from these disciples, apart from these followers of Jesus, they couldn't make sense what was happening. And knowing this, the apostle Peter, now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
stood up to explain. And if you haven't read Acts chapter two yet, I wanna encourage you this week to read through these words on your own and read this overview, if you would, this lengthy overview of Peter's message as he preached and declared to this crowd. I'm gonna just summarize the heart of his message with a few of these verses. Again, a brief overview of Peter's response. Verse 14, Luke writes, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he's gonna go on to quote the Old Testament prophet Joel, who many years before had prophesied about this very day and event, the day the Holy Spirit would come, to which Joel Joel declared in Acts chapter two, verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter continues by explaining who Jesus is and why he came, verse 22. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you 50-some days ago by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, as we've been singing about this morning, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And from there, Peter's gonna go on to quote from the psalm, specifically King David, but not before returning to the reality of what had taken place 50 days before, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 32, Peter proclaimed, God has raised this Jesus to life. And how do we know it? Because we've seen it with our own eyes, as we talked about last week, the many convincing proofs that he is alive. He says, we are all witnesses of it. He is exalted to the right hand of God, Acts chapter one, verse eight. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he has poured out now what you know or now see and hear. And just so there was no doubt then, Peter boldly declared, verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both our Lord and to be our Messiah. And how did the people respond? Well, here's what Luke writes, verse 37. He writes that when the crowd, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart meaning the Holy Spirit was working even amongst this crowd, opening minds, opening hearts to the message and the reality of Jesus. And so they were cut to the heart and and, and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do, brothers, what shall we do? And note Peter's words, we're gonna come back to these in just a few minutes. But Peter replied to them, here's your next step. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about this if you would. Peter had just received the gift of the Holy Spirit himself and his immediate response was to boldly share the message and story of Jesus with the people around him. And what was the result? Luke writes, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. 3,000 people added to the family of God on day one, and the mission is just getting started. 
I, I wanna take just a few minutes with you this morning to point out a few of the benefits that are available to us today because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but what does Acts chapter two mean for us today, these promises? Well, I think the first thing that we see and understand is that the Holy Spirit is the power behind the church. We're gonna see this all year long as we study Acts together, that when a church is following Jesus, not operating on its own strength, its own ideas, or its own political agenda, but instead following the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, leaning into and depending on the Holy Spirit, if we're not doing these things that our efforts as a church mean absolutely nothing. And that's why we wanna be a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a church that is led by the Spirit, trusting God's word as our ultimate source of truth and sharing the news of the resurrected Jesus with anyone the Lord puts into our lives, just as we see in the church in the beginning in Acts chapter two, verse 42, because look at how they respond at the very end of this chapter. Here's what a church empowered by the Holy Spirit demonstrates. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together in one place and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what did the Lord do with it? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I just want you to take note for a moment the actions of this first church as they spent time together in relationships with one another, learning together, worshiping Jesus together. They were generous. They were compassionate to the needs of their church, to the needs around them. They served together. They were constantly welcoming people in. The, the power of the Holy Spirit was working in them and through them, and people were finding their way back to God. But times are changing, aren't they? Like we live in a day and age, right, especially these past few years where so much has changed. So much has changed with the way that we live, the way that we operate, like new reports show sharp declines in things like church attendance and participation. Um, people don't volunteer like they used to. We'll, we'll, we'll sacrifice anything and everything for our kids and their activities, but we have little or no time for relationships, margin for even something like our church family. But here, 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit was the power behind the church. And that power was touching and changing people's lives and that power was getting the world's attention. And I like to think that, you know, the reason why you and I are sitting here today, the reason why the gospel, the good news of Jesus is still advancing here locally and around the world is because this first church dared, these people did, to surrender their lives to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit and to one another and they were sent out with the message of Jesus Christ and you know what, it's our turn now. We're up. It's Acts chapter 29, and we've got a part to play, and so the work continues with us. And that means something very personal for those of us, many of you that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that is that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power to share Christ boldly, to live boldly for Jesus. Peter stood up and he preached to a crowd that had a lot of mixed feelings about Jesus. And keep this in mind, all right, because this is the same Peter that just 50 days ago, all right, denied knowing Jesus three times before his death. But I want you to notice that he's not afraid anymore. He won't be afraid anymore. And what changed for Peter? The resurrected Jesus. 
He saw him with his own eyes. He experienced the reality of his resurrection. He's got the Holy Spirit in him now. And the fact is that what changed for Peter, what made all of the difference for Peter is what makes the difference for me and what makes the difference for you and can for us that, that the Holy Spirit is what changed him. And, and the truth is this, that when you and I, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and trust him as your Lord and Savior, you receive the very same Holy Spirit that we see Peter receiving here too. And this spirit, all right, this reality means a a new life. Uh, It means a a new beginning for you and for me. Like following Jesus means you're now a a, a part of Jesus' mission, that we're invited to be his ambassador, a witness for Jesus in this world. And I know that by saying that, some of you might be thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 like, like I'm the exception. You know, like uh, maybe the Lord's got this in mind for some, but you know, certainly not for me, especially if you know a little bit about my story and my past. Like I don't think you want somebody like me with my story and my past. But the promise of Jesus is that it's not about you and it's not about what you've done and it's not about trying to make yourself right with God. No, the, the beautiful promise of the cross and the resurrection is that it's what Jesus has done for us. Uh, it's that he lived his life, that he gave his life for you and, and he wants to give you and me his presence and his power so that we might have the courage to live faithfully and obediently for him in this world. And while he gives us his spirit so that we can be bold for him, all right, one of the comforting things about Jesus and his spirit is that he gives, he gives us his presence as a helper, as a, a friend, somebody to go through life with us, somebody to walk through life with us. And one of the things that I love about that is that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to overcome and to live through our weaknesses, to live in spite of them. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and we don't know for sure what his weakness was, but I want you to see God's response to the challenges in Paul's life. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 9, here's what Paul said about this experience with the Holy Spirit. He said that he heard from him that my grace is sufficient for you. God says that my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'm gonna boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties because when I am weak, I know that I am in the perfect place to be on the receiving end of his strength. And I can't tell you how much those words encourage me because I'm not strong enough and I don't have what it takes, but the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God is everything that I need. And maybe there's some encouragement in those words for you even today. No matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what it is that you've got coming up in your life, if you feel like you're at the end of your rope right now as a parent, right? You ever feel like you're at the end of your rope? Whether you are a first time new parent or you've been parenting for a really, really long time and have you ever thought to yourself, I'm not cut out for this, I'm ruining my kids, my kids are ruining me, all right, you know? But the Holy Spirit can give you things like patience and strength and wisdom and grace so that you can love your children. Maybe you're in a situation at work right now with your career thinking, I I can't do this one more day. But with the Holy Spirit, you can. 
We can, like he, he might have exactly what you need to get through this week before you. Maybe there's some sin or guilt in your life. You, you want things to change in your life, but, but you can't. It's the Holy Spirit that can give us the power we need when we are weak or when we are stubborn. Like he, he can help you overcome things like sin and guilt in your life. I was reading about Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers this week. Uh, if you follow football, you know that he's got a big decision coming up about his career and in planning and preparing for this decision, he's planning a four-day, as he describes, darkness retreat, uh, a four-day period of silence and solitude in the dark, and he's hopeful that his time away with this experience, but also prior experience with things like hallucinations will provide him some clarity about his next steps. Now, I'm not poking fun at Aaron Rodgers. I don't know him. I don't know much about his faith or what he thinks about God, but I will say this, that in the same way that he is looking for wisdom and help in making life's decisions, we all do, right? I mean, we all have different questions. We all have things and circumstances that we're going through where we need the help and the guidance of somebody like the Lord. You can go looking for help and wisdom and direction in a lot of different things in this world. The only reliable source available to us is the power and the presence of God. And as Christians, we have the hope and we have the promise of the Holy Spirit that he can be the light that we need, that he can provide for us the promise, the, the wisdom that we need for life's decisions. And so he gives us the power to share Christ boldly. He gives us the power to overcome and to operate even in spite of our weaknesses. Here's something else. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to overflow with hope. To be people, to be followers, to be a church that overflows with hope in this world. And that's important because we live in a world that could desperately use some reliable hope. I was reading about, maybe you've heard of this, the He Gets Us campaign. And if you watch the Super Bowl tonight, you'll discover that they've got a couple of commercials that are gonna air during the Super Bowl and they've been releasing those. You've seen them potentially in some sporting events even this year. In a world so desperate for hope, He Gets Us wants to share a message about Jesus, specifically the relatability, the love, the compassion of Jesus. And their efforts are being motivated by new research that reveals at least two things. The first is that 63% of people in the U.S. today identify as Christians, which is down from 75% in 2011. And so that's the bad news. But here's the good news. The same research indicates that there's a rising spiritual openness today that as of three out of four American adults say they want to grow spiritually and that they are more open to God than they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. And so in the same way he gets us is using their creative skills to share the message of Jesus. Let's all remember that it's our turn. We're up now. That we have a part and a role to play. And this is why we do what we do as a church because we know the same hope. And I don't know about you, but even as a Christian, I get sometimes so focused on my own circumstances and the things of this world that I can run a little low on hope and I shouldn't because as the Apostle Paul writes, Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is our source of hope, not the stock market, 
Our, our hope is not in the next Colts hire, whoever that will be. It's not in finding love or whether or not you ever get the dream kitchen you have always wanted. No, our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the one who gave his life, the one who paid a debt that you and I could never pay on our own. And it's because of the resurrected Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us that we as Christians can know the hope and enjoy the hope and reflect and share that hope with the people that we come in contact with all day. And maybe you're sitting here today and you know what, your story, when you think about these things, you're actually sitting on the other side of this hope. We talk about it as Christians and what it means for us, but maybe you're sitting on the other side of all of that thing thinking, you know what, what's it mean for me? Because if you're feeling lost in your life right now, if you're carrying around some incredible guilt, some pain, some questions that you have, maybe things from your past, you know, maybe if you were honest, you'd say, you know what, I don't know what to think about anything right now. You're, you're just going through the motions of life, hoping that it all leads to somewhere. Maybe you're in a situation where things are really tough in your home or tough in your marriage, and you don't see a way for anything to get better. Maybe you're sitting here at a place today saying, you know what, I'd love to give Jesus a chance, but here's the challenge for me. I put my trust in somebody who professed to be a Christian and they hurt me in a really, really deep way. Or maybe you'd love to take the next step with Jesus or even this church and put everything from your past behind. You'd love a fresh start. But again, you can't help but think, what, what does God think about me and the mess that I've made, the mess that I am? Can I tell you something really powerful and important here this morning? No matter who you are, no matter your circumstances or your story or even the questions that you have today, he gets you too and me. He does understand. He does get us and he loves us and it's why he came and it's why he died, and it's why God raised him from the dead, and he offers his life to you, to me, to anyone. And the best, most important part then about the Holy Spirit is, well, it's this, that it's the Holy Spirit that is the power for new life. He is the fuel and the source of our new life. And how does that happen? Well, the answer is in Peter's words again at the very end of his message, Acts chapter two, verses 37 and 38. Actually, let's skip to verse 38 because the question was, what should we do? And maybe you're even asking yourself today, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know for sure what's going on. I just realized there must be a next step. What shall we do? To which Peter, under the influence of the very presence of God, replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift, the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter's answer is what some of you need to hear and respond with today. Repent and be baptized. To, to repent means to change direction. It, it's, it's changing the way that you think about Jesus. It's, it's believing that there's more to this life and the way that you live, that he is alive, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. To repent means a change in behavior. It's 
It's a godly sorrow for the way that we've lived, the sin in our lives. It means admitting that I have sinned, I've fallen short, but I realize now that the grace and the forgiveness of God is available to me. Repentance means to change allegiance because if you've been living for yourself or someone else, repentance means you're ready to live for Jesus now, that you want him to be the Lord and the leader of your life. Here's what's true. We've all sinned, every single one of us. We all fall short of the standard that God has for our lives, but that's where Jesus enters in and the difference that he makes because he lived a life that I could never live, that you could never live. He paid the price, the penalty for sin that we could never pay for ourselves. And the amazing thing about God's love is that he won't force his love on you. He's not gonna force Jesus on you. You must receive him. You must choose him to decide today that I'm going to repent, that I want to be baptized. It's about turning from your old life and receiving the gift of his new life. And once we believe, as Peter says, and repent, we should be baptized. Baptism is just simply the benchmark of our new start, of our faith in Christ. It's a symbol that we are dead to our former ways as we go into the water, as Jesus was buried in the grave. But as we come up out of the water, it's as if we're being raised to life, as Jesus was raised to life, because the tomb is empty. And that whole transformation, again, is just a symbol that we've been raised to new life in Jesus. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's your move now. What does God want to do in your life? Not maybe later on today or later on this week, but how about right now? Is there a choice you need to make to confess Jesus, to trust Jesus?